Here's where we're going over the next few weeks. We've got a uh, study tonight. We're going to take a look at the words of Elihu. The next Sunday night, we're going to be finishing up the book of Job. Has a fantastic conclusion, uh, mind blowing conclusion. God comes and appears and talks to Job. And then uh, after that, the week after that, we've got 150 Psalms to jump into and begin to study. So. Uh, we'll be working our way through the book of Psalms. That may take us uh, a couple of months, so that'll be exciting. It'd be great to spend the winter time in the, in the Psalms, won't it? Well, tonight we're in Job chapter 32, and why don't we pray before we begin. God in heaven, thank you that you're not just in heaven. You're everywhere. Lord, we can't run from you. We can't hide from you. We can't turn a rock over, but that your presence is not around us and there to be revealed to us mostly lord we thank you that you're you're in our hearts if we believe in you if we trust in you you've come and you've taken personal residence inside of us and one of the things you do for us lord is you you're our teacher and and you make um, heavenly things very practical and you make heavy thoughts uh, very real and near. And you bring truths, Lord, that human minds wouldn't normally think. And yet you, you let us think those thoughts. And you bring us into, into contact and, and into the sphere of your influence. And we begin to see things from your eyes. And we begin, Lord, to, to feel your heartbeat in our lives. And that's what we want. That's really what we want. Lord, we want to walk with you in this, this life here below. We thank you, Lord, for the life that's coming, for the new world, the new day that's before us. And we may be very close. But, Lord, we thank you for the here and now. Also, we thank you that your presence can be known and that you can, can work uh, through life's trials and you can speak to us and that you live in us. And for all this tonight, Lord, we're grateful. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you be our teacher, and that you teach us great things tonight. Heavenly things, spiritual truths. Things, too, though, that are practical for our lives today. And, and so we dedicate this time to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Charlie Brown is on the pitcher's mound, and he's got this strained look on his face. He's looking at the opposing team, and he mutters, Nine runs in a row. Good grief. That's when he opens his mouth and he screams out, What can I do? Well, Schroeder, wearing his chest protector and his catcher's mask, he approaches Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown looks at Schroeder and he says, We're getting slaughtered again, and I don't know what to do. Why do we have to suffer like this? His catcher slash philosopher quotes a verse from the book of Job. Schroeder says, man is born to suffer as the sparks fly upward. Linus then joins them on the mound and he adds, the problem of suffering is a very profound one and just about that time Lucy interrupts and she says, if a person has bad luck, it's because they've done something wrong. That's what I always say. Schroeder replies, well, that's what Job's friends also told him, but I doubt it. Lucy fires back. What about his wife? 
I don't think she gets enough credit. Schroeder, he tries to continue his thought. He says, I think a person who never suffers never matures. Suffering is actually a very important, Lucy breaks in again, suffering, who wants to suffer? Don't be ridiculous. This whole time, Snoopy's standing there with his eyes wide open, listening to every word. By now, the whole team is on the mound with Charlie Brown. One of the other players, he states, but pain is a part of life. Another guy, he chimes in, a person who speaks only of the patience of Job reveals that he knows very little about this book. A third player comments, now the way I see it, finally, a disgusted Charlie Brown, he walks off the back of the mound, he looks at this entourage on the mound, and he says, I don't have a baseball team, I have a theological seminary. Hey, that Peanuts comic strip, it sums up the last 28 chapters of the book of Job. At the center of the pitcher's mound sits Job, <laughs> and he's getting slaughtered. His wealth is gone. His kids are dead. His fame has fallen. His body is covered with boils. And his teammates, this Eliphaz and that Bildad and old Zophar, they're all standing around him, giving them, him their unwanted, unsolicited explanations. And they draw a common conclusion. As a matter of fact, their theology allows just one conclusion. Like Lucy, they figure that Job's calamity was caused by sin in his life. They assert it, Job denies it. They insist it, Job refutes it. Back and forth it goes, firing verbal salvos at each other until we reach chapter 32. One author he writes of this dialogue, he says, For the 28 chapters, they engage in a running argument that increases in volume to a virtual shouting match. You sinned, they said. I did not, Job answered. You did. I didn't. You did too. I did not. Until finally, three would-be comforters turned accusers had nothing more to say. Job sat still in his loneliness and pain, and Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar became quiet in their frustration and bewilderment. Nothing was accomplished, no comfort delivered, no pain relieved, no insights gained. Job was still hurt, and his one dominant question, why, still remained unanswered. And that's where we pick it up tonight. In chapter 32. So these three men ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. You see, Job had maintained his innocence throughout. He never said that he was sinless, but he constantly asserted that he was blameless. We all sin. We all fall short of God's glory. But Job had done nothing specific to warrant his calamity. He was blameless. He had even offered sacrifices for his sin. Then the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. Now we know very little about this Elihu. A couple things mentioned here. For one, we know that he was a Georgia Tech fan because we're told that he was a Buzzite. 
We also know that he was a tough guy. He was from the family of Ram. He was Ram tough. And we also know that he was the angry young man. Oh boy, he was bad. He was angry. His anger had been aroused against Job. Why? We're told his wrath was aroused because Job justified himself rather than God. And it's true. In the dialogue, Job spends more time trying to prove his innocence than he does upholding God's character. You know, Job Job starts out perplexed and puzzled. All these things have happened to him and he doesn't know why. But in the midst of his pain and God's silence, Job loses perspective. You see, Job becomes so concerned about substantiating his own righteousness that he loses his reverence for God. A once humble Job accuses God. We've read his words. He shouts at God. He complains against God. He wants God to give him an explanation. And he wants it right now. And he wants it in writing. He even questions God's fairness. In short, a proud Job cops an attitude. And Mark, if I could get a little bit more of this, I'd appreciate that. Remember Job's three friends held to a shallow, restrictive kindergarten theology. We've talked about this. They believe that in this life, good is always rewarded and sin is always punished. Thus, when bad stuff happens, it means that either you sinned or God failed. And since God can't fail, Job must have sinned. You know, at first we see Job resting in God. The Almighty never fails. But as the dialogue drones on, Job's focus shifts. He begins to stress his innocence. He hasn't sinned. And on and on he goes about his innocence. Until we get to chapter 18 and verse 6, Job is so determined to justify himself and to prove his innocence that he makes this comment. He says, know then that God has wronged me. And has surrounded me with his net. In essence, this is what Job is saying. If my only two choices are God failed or I sinned, then God has failed. God wronged me because I certainly haven't wronged him. And Elihu is hearing this. He's listening to this. And he thinks, how arrogant. Who in the world does this Job think that he is? To talk to God that way. You know, throughout the dialogue, Elihu has been sitting on the sidelines. He's been listening to Job vent. And the more Job talked and accused God, the angrier Elihu became for God's sake. And Elihu could barely wait to speak his turn. Again, author Don Baker, he explains Elihu's role in the story as follows. Pay attention to this. It'll help you understand these next few chapters. He says, to be told that Job was wrong was nothing new. They had been, this had been his friend's theme song for days. They had said over and over again that Job was wrong in what he said about himself. He was wrong about his innocence. But Elihu was saying something totally different. Elihu was claiming that Job was saying something wrong about God. And that was true. In essence... As we've said before, in asking why, Job loses his way. This can happen sometimes when you get caught up in that why question. You can forget the who. 
And this was Job's problem. To vindicate himself, Job was casting doubt on God, God's goodness, God's fairness. And this was infuriating Elihu. And Job was not the only one who had raised Elihu's ire. Verse 3. Also, against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. I mean, Elihu, he was equally angry with Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar. They lacked a single shred of evidence that Job had done anything wrong, yet they accused him anyway. You remember they even made up accusations about him. Elihu had heard the last 28 chapters, and he was now mad at both parties, at Job and at Job's three friends. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. Custom was, the old guys spoke first, and then the young guns, it was their turn, but, but they had to wait. They had to wait their turn. Age first. And when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. Again, this is the angry young man in the story, this Elihu. You know, he'll speak to all four men in his chapters here. In fact, Elihu will speak straight through six chapters, 165 verses. He has a long monologue. In fact, Elihu actually speaks more in the book than anyone else. He's a very important character. Verse 6. So Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I am young in years, and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. Of course, in Elihu's culture, older men were held in great esteem. Rarely did a young man ever rebuke an older man. This was his hesitation. And yet, the dialogue had, had caused him to want to speak. He just had to speak. He, he got up his nerve. And I said, age should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. In other words, experience should make older men wiser than younger men. But that's not always the case. Often God gives spiritual wisdom to young men. And in those situations, the young bucks need to teach the old geezers. This was such a case. Elihu comments, great men are not always wise nor do the aged always understand justice. In other words, just because you're older and just because you've got a reputation for wisdom doesn't guarantee that you're always going to be right. Once I took a college course, and we showed up for class the first day, and the professor missed the first day of class. Turns out the absent-minded professor had failed to read the schedule, didn't show up for class. And it sort of set a tone for the whole semester, trust me. And I learned a lesson that day. Great men are not always wise, as Elihu said. You know, there are plenty of people who understand quantum physics and are experts in DNA, but they can't change a flat tire, balance their checkbook. Intelligence and education are no substitute for common sense. Well, verse 10 tells us, Therefore I say, listen to me, I also will declare my opinion. Now, now remember, God has yet to speak, but everyone else now has an opinion. Elihu says, I'm going to tell you mine. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you, and surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words, lest you say, we have found wisdom, 
God will vanquish him, not man. Elihu reminds Bildad, Eliphaz, and Zophar that they had 28 chapters to explain Job's plight, but they had failed to present a reasonable explanation. Elihu had waited until the older men had finished, but now it's his turn. Verse 17. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The Spirit, you know, Kathy says that about me sometimes. For I am full of words. The Spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wine skins. You know, throughout this four-way dialogue, and, and then Job's ending monologue, Elihu's thoughts and his emotions, they had been fermenting in his mind and in his heart. And now he wants to respond. In fact, he's on the verge of exploding. He wants to respond so bad. You know, Elihu is like a wine bottle and the cork's about to pop if he doesn't get some things out, get some things off his chest. He says, I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone nor let me flatter any man, for I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. I'm just going to tell it to you straight, he says. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, Job, they've all spoken. Now it's Elihu's turn. In chapter 33, Elihu asked Job to listen to him. Verse 3, My words come from an upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Verse 6. Truly, I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. You remember on several occasions, Job had cried out for a mediator. For someone to represent him before God. And here, Elihu volunteers to be that mediator. He, he says, you know, I'll be your spokesman before God, Job. The name Elihu means my God is he. Or in God's stead. And, and he's saying, I'll be your spokesman before God. I'll, I'll represent you in God's stead. Surely no fear of me will terrify you. Nor will my hand be heavy on you. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words, saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent, and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts me at my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. Elihu had been listening to Job. And this was exactly what Job had uttered. He had blamed God for treating him like an enemy. In fact, he had accused God of torturing him. According to Job, God had violated the Geneva Convention. That God was torturing him like a, like a prisoner. He was torturing Job. You know, he's put my feet in the stocks, he says. All these things Job had said. And Elihu tells Job, look, in this you are not righteous. You're wrong, Job, in what you're saying. You know, Job's attitude toward God had soured over the course of the dialogue. Job had grown accusatory. Here's what's important. Sin may not have caused Job's calamity, but sadly, Job had sinned in his response to his calamity. 
Sin didn't cause his calamity, but he sinned in his response to his calamity. You see, Elihu adds, I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? Job, why all this attitude? Job, you are a finite speck of dust. You are a mere man. What right do you have to take God to task? Job, why all this attitude? In this, you are not righteous. Verse 13, for he does not give an accounting of any of his words. And and here Elihu hits the nail right on the head. God is God. He doesn't owe Job or anyone else for that matter an explanation for his actions. Did you know that God doesn't need your permission to go to work in your life? Do you know that? God doesn't need your permission nor does God owe you an explanation for His ways. God is above His creation. He is not accountable to it. He is above it. As a matter of fact, we exist at God's prerogative. You know that. I mean, God just snapped His fingers and you're gone, man. And any blessing that we receive... Oh, you know, it's a result of God's grace. It's an extension of His mercies to us. You see, Job had yet to learn one of the first rules of theology. This is so important. I hope you learn this. One of the first rules of theology. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. Where God has placed a period, don't you change it to a question mark. If God refuses to offer you a reason, learn to live without one. Trust God. Don't question Him. Here's a great great question for all of us. Can we trust God even when we can't trace Him? Can we trust Him even when we can't trace Him? Well, verse 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. Elihu suggests here to Job that God may have given him a reason, but he's just not been perceptive enough to hear God's voice. And, of course, this is always a possibility. I mean, God wants to speak His will to us. But we can grow hard-hearted, can't we? We can become callous. We can be guilty of some selective listening. You know, we only hear from God what we want to hear from God. And we can... Be poor listeners and therefore miss his instruction. He's saying this is a possibility. He says, in a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction. I mean, God can speak in a dream or in a vision. He has different ways of opening our ears. He speaks to us in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit. And his life from perishing by the sword. And when we drift, and we all do drift from time to time, God comes, he rescues us, he speaks to us to draw us back, to pull us back away from temptation, to stop our drifting. Aren't you glad God does this, that he loves us this much? And, and you know, I don't, you know, people say, well, how do, you, how do you know God's will for your life? How do you hear God? You know, I put a whole lot more confidence in God's ability to speak than I do in my ability to hear. I found that if I really want to hear God, He'll find some way of getting a message to me. 
we forget sometimes God wants us to be in His will more than we do. He says, man is also chastened with pain on his bed and with strong pain in many of his bones. Now, Elihu doesn't actually accuse Job here. But in the next few verses, he says that God warns men through sickness and through starvation. Sometimes God puts us on our back in order to get us to look up. Sometimes he does that. Verse 23 tells us, if there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness. In in other words, there are times when God does speak to men through other men or through a messenger or a mediator. Our ultimate mediator is our Lord Jesus. But I tell you, there have been times when Jesus has spoken to me, when the voice of Jesus has come to me through the voice of a concerned friend. And I'm thankful for my friends, those that speak into my life. The voice of God, the words of God. He says, then he is gracious to him. In other words, when God's word does come to us, what is it always full of? It's always full of grace. Aren't you glad of that? He says, then he is gracious to him. And he says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. I mean, heed God's message, and it turns back the clock in your life. It refreshes and restores. Did you know that obedience to God's message is the fountain of youth? Did you know that? That when God speaks to his people and we obey, his word to us is always graciousness and refreshment. And he returns us to the days of our youth. He puts a spring back in our step. He puts a smile back on our face whenever we take heed to his word. When a man takes heed to God's message, he shall pray to God, and he will delight in him, Elihu says. He shall see his face with joy, for he restores to man his righteousness. And then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. Elihu is saying that when a man confesses his sin, that God then redeems his soul. He says he will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. Behold, God works all these things twice, in fact, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. God is willing to bring a person back from the pit, not one time, not two times, even three times, even more than that. God's mercy has no limitations. You know, have you noticed it? Or read where some of these states today, they have these a three-strike policy. I don't know if Georgia has this or not. Does Georgia have a three-strike, two-strike policy? Who? Sonny Purdue's tough. But, but some states, you know, they have this three-strike policy. This is also called the habitual offender law. If a person commits three felonies, the court is forced to sentence that person to life in prison. I mean, it's society's attempt to get tough on crime. But, but aren't you glad that God doesn't have a three strikes in your out policy, you know? My, oh my. You know, verse 29 says that God will bring back a man from the pit even after the third strike. I mean, even when the, the umpire of life, you're out! God says, no, you're not. I still love you. I can still work with you. If you, if you come back up to the plate, we can still work this thing out. You just got to keep coming back to the plate. You just got to stay in the game. God will work with you. He loves you. 
I like that. A man, a woman is never beyond redemption when God is at work. Now, in the last few verses here, Elihu implores Job to let him speak. And he'll teach him wisdom. And actually, Elihu's words, when you study them in their entirety, they're really a mixed bag, just as a reference point here. You see, Elihu's focus is good. His focus is on God's glory. And that is an emphasis that Job needs. But, but you've got to understand, Elihu also is still trapped in this kindergarten theology we've talked about. And what happens here is that the first half of chapter 33 is right on. God didn't need Elihu to defend him, but he, he did defend him, and he defended him quite well. It's not Job's place to question or criticize God. But in the second half of the chapter, Elihu has parroted Job's three friends. It's sort of been more of the same. You know, he's basically been saying to Job, you know, your life will get better if you'll just confess your sin, Job. And he's sort of sounding like the three guys that have gone before him. So Elihu's a mixed bag. He's, he gets God's attention, Job's attention on the glory of God, but, but he's still trapped in this kindergarten theology we've been talking about. So, chapter 34. Elihu further answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men. Give ear to me, you who have knowledge. For the ear tests words as the palate tastes food. Always be discerning of what you hear taught. You know, it's funny. People go to a restaurant, and they're so picky. And, and you've seen these food shows, you know, where they, you know, the cook, you know, and all the, the tasters are all gathered around, and they're tasting each little entree and each little part. And, oh, this is a little too salty here, and this, oh, this flavoring here, and, oh, I can really taste the cinnamon here, and, 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 all of the, and their palate is so... Uh, in tune, I suppose. And, and, yet, and yet, people just take in whatever teaching they hear with no sense of discernment whatsoever. Well, Oprah said. What does that mean? Oprah says a lot of things that are wrong. You know, you, you need some discernment. You need to test the teacher like you, like you sample your food. Be careful. As an enemy can poison food, a teacher can poison words. There's a lot of spiritual food that people are taking in these days that's full of poison, deadly poison. He says, let us choose justice for ourselves. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am righteous, but God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? You know, for Job to admit a sin when he was innocent, it would have been committing a sin. If he'd admitted a sin, if he's innocent, he would have been committing a sin. It would have been a lie. And so Job had concluded, my wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. And, of course, this was Job's argument throughout. You know, I'm going through all this thing. I'm suffering. I've got this terminal problem here, but, but I'm innocent. And now Elihu comments in verse 7, What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water, who goes in company with the workers of iniquity and walks with wicked men, 
For he has said, it profits a man nothing that he should delight in God. Here again, Elihu is trapped in this restrictive theology. According to his mindset, either God failed or Job is a failure. For Job to assert his innocence in the wake of his suffering, in Elihu's mind, it was to to deny the value of a righteous life. He's saying, who is this Job who's saying, basically saying that it doesn't pay to do good? That's what he's saying. Verse 10. Therefore listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do wickedness and from the Almighty to commit iniquity. For he repays man according to his work and makes man to find a reward according to his way. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. In other words, Job was wrong to accuse God of some of the things he had. To accuse God of torturing him. God upholds justice. And Elihu is saying that it's blasphemy to say that God has not been fair. You know, Philip Yancey says of Job, he wandered just to the edge of blasphemy. And indeed he did. He says, who gave him charge over the earth? Or who appointed him over the whole world? It's interesting. You you know we're about to vote on a president, but nobody voted on God. You know, God, God, God is not an elected office. You realize that. He didn't have to run for God to be God. God. God is not appointed. God is not elected to office. God is no politician. It's not like he's accountable to his constituency back home. That he'll get impeached if we don't like what he does. None of that's true of God. God is God. He's not applying for the job. He says, if he should set his heart on it, if he should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to dust. Again, you exist because of God's prerogative. I mean, you exist because God allows you to exist. I hope you know that. You remember when God formed Adam from the dust of the ground? We're told that he breathed into him the breath of life. Life itself is the breath of God. But what if God inhaled? <laughs> what if God drew back in his breath? What would happen? Here we're told well, we would all vaporize. We'd all instantly, be, the life would be sucked right out of us and we'd return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this. Listen to the sound of my words. Should one who hates justice govern, will you condemn him who is most just? Is it fitting to say to a king, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked? Job hadn't just condemned a king. He had condemned God. He had questioned God in heaven. If men on earth rule in justice, how much more does God rule in justice and in righteousness. Yet he is not partial to princes, nor does he regard the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. You know, God is never prejudiced. God God is always purely unbiased. He doesn't favor the rich over the poor. He doesn't favor the prince over the pauper. We're told in a moment they die. In the middle of the night, the people are shaken and pass away. The mighty are taken away without a hand. For his eyes are on the ways of man, 
and he sees all his steps. And there is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. You, you know, every man on earth is subject to God's scrutiny. Elihu says that, you know, there, there's a lot that Elihu says that is true and that is right. And, and here he is restoring God's honor. He's, he's getting Job's eyes back off of himself and back on God, and that's a good thing. In fact, Elihu is paving the way for God to come and speak to Job in chapter 38. Well, he continues, for he, for he need not further consider a man that he should go before God in judgment. In other words, if you died tonight and you stood before God, God wouldn't need to scan your file before he judged you. Well, oh, get those videotapes out on Sandy. Let, let's, I, I don't remember Sandy. Let, let me... Let me let me see that information again. God wouldn't need to do it. He wouldn't need my file. He already knows me. He knows me inside and out. He knows me better than I know myself. He's, he's quite capable right now to, to make some informed judgments about me. It says he breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry. And he sets others in their place. God doesn't consult with his counselors before he makes a move. God has no counselors. You understand that? Therefore, he knows their works. He overthrows them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turned back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, for he hears the cry of the afflicted. God knows all these things. You know, this past week we saw the pictures of the president sitting there at the big table there in the office. And he's got all his cabinet members around him. And there's, he's got John McCain in there and Barack Obama in there. And he's got all the people. And they're all consulting, trying to figure out our problems and work out our issues and, and all of those things. Don't, don't ever get a picture of God sitting around the table with his cabinet members. That's not a good picture. God, God has no cabinet members. God needs no counselors. God, God makes his own decisions. And here we're told that God knows the bullies by name. You know, he knows that. If you mistreat or if abuse one of his kids, God knows where you live. You know, you understand that. God, God will cause, uh, you know, he'll, he'll, he hears the cry of the afflicted. If somebody's crying out, God hears that. Verse 29, when he gives quietness, who then can make trouble? And when he hides his face, who then can see him? Whether God is silent or whether God is hidden, we play the hand that we're dealt. God doesn't consult with us beforehand. You know, he, he allocates to us what, what he wants us to, to deal with, and, and we've got to deal with it. Verse 31, For has anyone said to God, I have borne chastening, I will offend no more? Teach me what I do not see. If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. All men sin. Elihu is saying, Job, you shouldn't have to look so hard in your life to find some sin. And in one sense, he was right. But Job's sin had not caused his calamity. Yet Job had sinned. Should he repay it according to your terms, just because you disavow it? You must choose and not I. Therefore, speak what you know. 
Should God atone for a sin in Job's life that Job refuses to even admit exists? That's what he's saying. Job, you need to come clean. You need to confess your sin. That's what Elihu's saying to him. Verse 34. Men of understanding say to me, wise men who listen to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words are without wisdom. Oh, that Job were tried to the utmost because his answers are like those of wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin. He claps his hands among us. It multiplies his words against, against God. Now, now, in one sense, he's no different than Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Job's calamity was caused by some sin in his life. This is what Elihu is saying to him. But here's where Elihu differs from Eliphaz. He says, Job, you've sinned twice. You sinned the first time and that brought on this calamity. But since then, you've, you've also sinned in how you've responded to this calamity. Elihu was wrong in the first accusation, but he was right in how Job had responded. He had sinned in his response to all this calamity. He was right in that. In essence, he was saying to Job, you've gone too far in trying to vindicate yourself. In essence, he's saying, even if Job had done everything right... Job's innocence didn't make God guilty. Here's what Job was doing. I'll try to simplify it. Job was trying to make God look bad so he could look good. You ever talk to people like that? They try to make other people look bad so that they can look good. That's basically what Job was doing toward the end of that dialogue. Trying to make God look bad so he could look good. Eliphaz points this out to Job. This is wrong. Again, Eliphaz was trapped in this restrictive theology. To him, when bad stuff happened, it meant that God had failed or man had sinned, so Job had sinned. But Job was just as trapped in his theology, for he had erred on the other side. Since he hadn't sinned, Job had concluded that God had failed, and that too was wrong. Elihu points out that the real tragedy in Job's life was not the loss of his wealth or his health or his status or even his family, but Job lost the fear of God. He lost the fear of God. And that's the thing you don't want to lose. You can lose everything else as long as you have the fear of God. But if you lose the fear of God... That, that's not good. You know, when we experience pain, we can make a lot of statements that we really don't mean. What does God want to make my life so miserable? What are we doing? We're accusing God. We need to be careful. I feel like God has forsaken me. Why doesn't He ever answer my prayers? I'm just doing something good for God. Why did He let this happen? If this is how God is going to treat me, why even am I a Christian? Be careful what you say. Don't accuse God. You know, after the death of his beloved wife, C.S. Lewis wrote in his journal, Not that I am in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about Him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there is no God after all, but... So this is what God's really like? 
deceive yourself no longer. In other words, Lewis's pain was casting doubt on God's goodness. And this was Job. His confusion and his hurt almost suffocated his faith. Almost. Joe Bailey was a prolific Christian author. He died as the president of David C. Cook, a publisher of Sunday School Curriculum. During his lifetime, Joe Bailey and his wife, they suffered greatly. They buried three of their kids. One at 18 days old after an unsuccessful surgery. One at five years old after leukemia. One at 18 years old after a sledding accident. Joe experienced his share of pain. And yet Joe had a saying that he lived by. It went like this. Remember in the darkness what you have learned in the light. Remember in the darkness what you have learned in the light. You know when the lights go off. You know when it gets dark in our lives. And we all go through those dark spots, don't we? We all go through those dark places, those lonely times. When God seems, seems hidden. When God remains silent. When we're in the dark, we can think things, we can say things that are not true. We can get ourselves in a lot of trouble. That's why we need to, when we're in the dark, we need to remember what we've learned in the light. When the lights go out, don't forget what you've learned about God. Remember who God is, even when you're in a dark place. Don't forget that. Chapter 35. Moreover, Elihu answered and said, Do you think this is right? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, What advantage will it be to you? What profit shall I have more than if I had sinned? You know, Job had drawn some rash conclusions. He claimed that it made no difference what kind of life a man lived. What did it matter if a man lived a righteous life or a wicked life? Again, he was speaking from his pain. In Job's life, the reward had been identical. He had been righteous, and look what he got for it. You see, Job's perspective was so cloudy, and yet he spoke with such certainty. Be careful you don't do that. You know, there's a time when you, you just got to say, wait a minute, I don't know, I don't understand. It's okay not to understand. It's okay not to know. You know, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, chapter 29, verse 29. It's one that I fall back on all the time. It says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. And there are some things that only God knows. See, here's the problem with Job. There's no longer any humility in his heart. He has gotten way too full of himself. This is what pain will do to you. Elihu continues, I will answer you and your companions with you. Look to the heavens and see, and behold the clouds. They are higher than you. And from the rest of his speech, we assume that Elihu is pointing now to some real clouds that are forming on the horizon. Some storm clouds are gathering in the heavens, off in the distance. He says, if you sin, what do you accomplish against him? Or if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects a man such as you, and your righteousness a son of man. Because of the multitude of oppressions, they cry out. They cry out for help because of the arm of the mighty. Elihu is saying that 
the impact of a man's wickedness or righteousness affects more than just that man. It affects the people around him. It affects God. Verse 10, But no one says, Where is God my maker? Who gives songs in the night? Notice this, I love this. Notice God does speak to us. God is never totally silent. For even in the dark, even in the night of life, even when the sun doesn't shine, and you lay in your bed tossing and turning, waiting for the break of day, even in those times, God gives songs in the night. Don't you like that? Even in those times, the Spirit of God sings of His grace. Even in the dark place, He gives songs in the night. Just because God is quiet or God seems hidden, don't believe that He's absent. For He's not. He is still with you. You know, at our house, we have a night light in the hallway. It doesn't give off a lot of light. It, it wouldn't illuminate a parking lot. But if someone gets up in the middle of the night and, and has to maneuver around the house, it's enough light to kind of help them move around where they don't have to flip all the lights on and wake everybody else up. And God also gives to His people these little night lights. You know, just because you're in a dark place, don't believe that the sun no longer shines. It's shining, shining somewhere. God still loves you. God is still in control. And, and He will communicate it in gentle and in subtle ways. He'll give you songs in the night, little night lights to help you get through. He says, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven. I mean, obviously, God is our teacher. And there they are. There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not listen to empty talk, nor will the Almighty regard it. Although you say you do not see him, yet justice is before him, and you must wait for him. And now, because he has not punished in his anger, nor taken much notice of folly, therefore Job opens his mouth in vain. He multiplies words without knowledge. Job has been challenging God to speak. He should be thankful that God has not punished him for those challenges. You know, Job wants God to speak, but he's not willing to wait on God, and that's a problem. Job has become impatient. Job has filled the air with empty talk and with words without knowledge. And Elihu is fulfilling an important function in God's plan. If God appeared at that moment, Job wouldn't be able to digest what God would say to him. For Job's heart has become hard and his mind has become closed. And that's why Elihu is challenging some of his thinking. And he's preparing Job for God's visit in chapter 38. Chapter 36 Elihu also proceeded and said, Bear with me a little, and I will show you that there are yet words to speak on God's behalf. Job was so busy defending his own character, Elihu's saying, Wait a minute, th there's some things that need to be said on God's behalf here. I will fetch my knowledge from afar. I will ascribe righteousness to my Maker. For truly my words are not false. One who is perfect in knowledge is with you. And that's a little arrogant on Elihu's part. He sounds like the young man fresh out of Bible college. 
Listen to me. I'm going to fetch knowledge from a distance. Don't forget, the one who has perfect knowledge is with you, Job. Boy, oh boy. Elihu is a bit of a know-it-all. Behold, God is mighty, but despises no one. He is mighty in strength of understanding. In other words, God hasn't picked you out, Job, to be his whipping boy. God despises no one. God loves everyone. He wants the best for all of us. Elihu goes on to describe the righteous reign of God. He says he does not preserve the life of the wicked, but gives justice to the oppressed. He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings. For he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. And if they are bound in fetters, held in the courts of affliction, then he tells them their work and their transgressions, that they have acted defiantly. Elihu addresses a major issue on Job's mind. God doesn't punish without an explanation. He tells us what we've done wrong. Elihu is correct in this. The issue with Job was not some wrongdoing. His suffering was not some punishment. It was an opportunity to glorify God. Job just didn't see it. He says God also opens their ear to instruction and He commands that they turn from iniquity. If they obey and serve Him, they will spend their days in prosperity and their years in pleasure. But if they do not obey, they shall perish by the sword and they shall die without knowledge. And that is an example of kindergarten theology. It's a classic example. And is that true? Sometimes. (laughs) But not all the time. In verse 13, Elihu talks about God's judgment on the hypocrites. But then he numbers Job among them. (laughs) That's a bad thing. Verse 16. Indeed, he would have brought you out of dire distress into a broad place where there is no restraint. And what is set on your table would be full of riches. But you are filled with the judgment due the wicked. Judgment and justice take hold of you. Because there is wrath. Beware lest he take you away with one blow. For a large ransom would not help you avoid it. Will your riches or all the mighty forces keep you from distress? Do not desire the night when people are cut off in their place. In some ways to me, Elihu is a great disappointment. Yes, he fears God and, and he upholds righteousness, but in places he, he, he reverts back to the same kind of torturous comments that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar had made toward Job. He kind of falls right back into that trap of that kindergarten theology. And here's a great example. He's just accusing him of, of, of some sin in his life, you know. Verse 21, take heed, do not turn to iniquity, for you have chosen this rather than affliction. Behold, God is exalted by his power. Who teaches like him? Who has assigned him his way? Or who has said, you have done wrong? Remember to magnify his work of which men have sung. Everyone has seen it. Man looks on on it from afar. Behold, God is great, and we do not know him, nor can the number of his years be discovered. Job needs this encouragement. He needs to get his eyes off his pain and back onto God. You know, he's been so fixated on the what he's endured and the why he can't explain that he's forgotten the who that he loves and the who that loves him. And that's the problem. Sometimes we we, we miss it by one little letter. We need to change the why, the W-H-Y, to an O. We need to change the why to a who. That's what's going to happen at the end of this story. You know, so much of God is a mystery. And let's remember what we know. Let's remember what we don't know.
Verse 27. For he draws up drops of water, which distill as rain from the midst, which the clouds drop down and pour abundantly on man. Indeed, can anyone understand the spreading of clouds, the thunder from his canopy? And here Elihu, he marvels at at nature's hydrological system. How water turns to gas and evaporates and then it distills into rain. As hot and cold air collide, thunder shakes the canopy of the heavens. There's such beauty in a storm. He says, look, he scatters his light upon it and he covers the depths of the sea. And as he's talking about a storm, we take it that an actual thunderstorm must have been brewing at this very moment. Job doesn't know it yet, but God is riding on this storm that's coming toward them. And he is going to appear to Job in chapter 38 in the whirlwind or in this storm that's now starting to brew. God is going to speak to Job from the storm. He says, for by these thunderstorms, he judges the people. He gives food in abundance. He covers his hands with lightning and commands it to strike. His thunder declares it. the cattle also concerning the rising storm. Chapter 37. At this also my heart trembles and leaps from its place. Hear attentively the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes from his mouth. He sends it forth under the whole heaven, his lightning to the ends of the earth. After it a voice roars, his thunders with its majestic voice, and he does not restrain them when his voice is heard. God thunders marvelously with his voice. He does great things which we cannot comprehend. God has some things to say to Job from the storm. For he says to the snow, fall on the earth, likewise to the gentle rain and the heavy hand rain of his strength. He seals the hand of every man that all men may know his work. You know, I love a southern snowstorm. We're told that when he sends the storm, he seals the hand of every man, that all men may know his work. I love a southern snowstorm. You know, Atlanta is such a fast-paced city, such a busy place, busy people with can't-wait projects, with can't-miss appointments. We're all running. We're all so important. The things we do are so important. And yet, in a few hours, God dumps a couple of inches of snow in the city. And what happens? All life comes to a screeching halt. You can't get your car out of the driveway. And guess what happens? Guess what happens? Well, you, you get over your frustration, and you, you, you get over your, your powerlessness, and your feeling of impotence, and your feeling of... And this is out of my control. You get over all that, and then what do you do? Well, you play with your kids. You go outside and you throw snowballs, and you build a snowman. And then you sit with your family by a fire in a fireplace to try to stay warm. And you spend a little time with your spouse. And you, your wife gets a cup of hot chocolate, and, and you're sitting there with her, and she's reading a book, and you're playing in the snow. And, and what happens? In a few hours... God forces the whole city to revisit their priorities. And he puts life back in perspective. And he shows us what's really important. And he can do that with just a couple of inches of white stuff. It's amazing. It's still September, but let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. Verse 8, the beasts go into dens and remain in their lairs. 
Elihu explains how God sends the animals into their winter hibernation. And from the chamber of the south comes the whirlwind, and cold from the scattering winds of the north. Storms result from the colliding of air masses. By the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen. Also with moisture, He saturates the thick clouds. He scatters His bright clouds, and they swirl about, being turned by His guidance, that they may do whatever He commands them on the face of the whole earth. You know, even in the light of the science of meteorology, wind is still a mysterious force. No one understands the wind. And with all of the computer models available to us, did you notice a few months ago, with all of the computer models and all of the science and all of the meteorologists available to us, they still can't determine the path of a hurricane. They can't. Why? Here we're told, because the wind swirls being turned by God's guidance. That they may do whatever He commands them on the face of the whole earth. God causes the storms to come, whether for correction or for His land or for mercy. That's interesting. There's three reasons God sends a storm. Storms can punish. Storms can water. And storms can bless. Verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Do you know when God dispatches them and causes the light of His cloud to shine? Do you know how the clouds are balanced? Those wondrous works of Him who is perfect in knowledge? Why are your garments hot when He quiets the earth by the south wind? The Mediterranean breezes would blow in and they would cool the land of us. And when the breeze stopped blowing off the Mediterranean, the desert heat would rise and their garments would get hot. And he's saying, Job, do you know how all this works? He's trying to humble Job. With God, have you spread out the skies strong as a cast metal mirror? Teach us what, should, what we should say to him. For we can prepare nothing because of the darkness. Should he be told that I wish to speak? If a man were to speak, surely he would be swallowed up. Job has demanded an audience before God to plead his case. But Elihu doubts if a fragile Job would fare very well in the presence of the Almighty. He says, even now, men cannot look at the light when it is bright in the skies. And the sun can be so blinding. When the wind has passed and cleared them, he comes from the north as golden splendor. With God is awesome majesty. As for the Almighty, we cannot find him. He is excellent in power, in judgment, and abundant justice. He does not oppress. Oppress. Therefore, men fear him. And, and it's as if Elihu is asking, Job, do you still fear God? Job, you, you've, you've, you've become very proud, very, very haughty. Job, do you still fear God? Remember, you can lose your wealth, you can lose your health, you can lose your family. There, there are a lot of things you can lose, but the one thing you don't want to lose in this life is the fear of God. He shows no partiality to any who are wise of heart. God is about to appear to Job. 
He's coming on the clouds. He's going to appear to Job in a world, in this storm that's been brewing and that Elihu has been describing. And sparks are going to fly in chapter 38. You know, later, God will restore Job. And he will rebuke Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It's interesting, though, that Elihu isn't mentioned in God's rebuke. Though his words weren't perfect, they did serve God's purpose in Job's life. Elihu got Job's eyes off of himself and back onto God. He restored for Job some perspective. He restored some reverence for God and some humility for himself, and that was important. Now that Elihu's done, Job is ready. Well, as ready as he can be for what is about to happen in chapter 38. There we have it. And we'll start in chapter 38 next Sunday night. So read chapter 38 through the end of the book. You'll be blessed.